Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. During the Civil War, a bunch of young kids in New York wrote to their dad. But their dad wasn't in southern states fighting. He was in Hong Kong making money. These were men who knew how to think well ahead of the curve and also had kind of a you know, a ruthlessness uh, in terms of where they put their money and how they operated their businesses. Warren Delano, whose children wrote to him during the Civil War, was one of a group of fortune hunters who took huge risks on the high seas, says historian Stephen Ujifusa. And while they were at it, those fortune hunters reshaped America. Delano became the grandfather of a president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And plenty of other families used the age of super-fast clipper ships to cement their prominence in society, like the Forbes family and Abel Abbott Lowe, whose son would become mayor of New York. These men were kind of the uh, Jeff Bezos of their time, that they sped up the supply chain of the delivery of tea from China to New York and Boston, and also sped up the delivery of goods from New York to San Francisco during the gold rush. Uji Fusa is the author of the book Barons of the Sea, which chronicles the brief but incredibly important era of the clipper ship. Ships that were tall and slim with huge white billowing sails. Ships meant to cut through the water as fast as possible. And ships that folks like Warren Delano moved around in a huge chess game, playing out all over the world. In fact, the city of San Francisco grew from a fishing village of around 2,000 people in the late 1840s to a major metropolis by the late 1850s because these clipper ships carried everything needed to build a great city. Ujifusa says that these boats were, yes, incredibly lucrative, but the chess game they were moving in was deadly and dangerous. Forces of nature were often against them, and sometimes so were international politics. This was pure, unadulterated, laissez-faire capitalism. These ships were built bigger and faster and loftier Without any sort of government regulation of any kind, in fact, these ships were not given trial voyages. They were built in yards in Boston and New York, launched and loaded up with a, a full cargo of goods worth, you know, a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars. That's a in today's money. That's a huge amount, and then crewed up with fifty or sixty men, and then sent off to China, sent off to San Francisco, and whatever happened, happened. What happened, not infrequently, was disaster. Remember, in the heyday of the clipper ships, which only lasted from the 1840s to the 1860s, there was no Suez Canal, there was no transcontinental railroad. If you wanted to get a ship full of stuff from New York to San Francisco, you had to go around the tip of South America. If you're trying to get goods from New York to San Francisco during the gold rush, you're talking about a city during the peak boom years where an egg would sell for a dollar. We're talking 1850s dollars. That's about, to put a rough estimate, around a $20 egg. Uh, if you got those eggs from New York or New England to San Francisco first, you would make the most money and command the highest freight rates. So the old saying was, uh, to uh, make money during a gold rush, don't dig for gold, sell goods to the miners. Mm. And uh, at the same time, tea is something that we just take for granted today. Uh, we could just buy it at Whole Foods or buy it at any local supermarket right. whenever we want. Well, uh, tea in the mid-19th uh, century, this was a good that only came once a year uh, after the first spring pickings in China. So whatever merchant got the tea to New York or Boston the fastest would make the most money. Hmm. Do you feel like, you know, you talked, we talked about Delano, obviously, that's Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who, you know, was going to be part of that family and Forbes. 
Um, do you feel like the people who were drawn to this sort of race to get around the world as fast as possible, um, were these like unusual people in that they were like had a kind of taste for uh, being daring, more daring than your average person? I think very much so. The uh, men that owned these clipper ships in New York and Boston, these were people who really liked to put long-haul bets. This is a time before transportation was even reliable. Ships could leave on a schedule, but you never know when they'd arrive. So you'd have to had that sort of betting mindset. And also, a number of the characters I write about in the book, most notably Warren Delano, but also the Forbes brothers, they spent time in China as young men in their early 20s, uh, anywhere from five to 10 years away from their families. And the purpose of this time abroad was to make money in the China trade, smuggling opium in from India and Turkey into China and using the proceeds of that, most of the proceeds of that, to buy tea to ship home. Hmm. That itself was a dangerous and up until the uh, First and Second Opium Wars, a pretty much a legal business, at least uh, smuggling the opium into China. And yeah, to take that sort of risk as a young man and, and get involved in that kind of trade required kind of like a sort of toughness that's sort of hard to imagine today. So when you talk about smuggling opium into China, um, I mean, this is something that's highly addictive. By the mid-1800s, millions of Chinese were addicted. How were these American fortune hunters, how were they changing China? And, you know, what was the government there saying to them? And, like, how did uh, Chinese government officials feel about the opium trade? Well, the imperial Chinese government called opium foreign mud. And it was banned uh, in 1799 from being imported into the Celestial Kingdom. But the uh, British merchants, the Americans, would smuggle these, smuggle the drugs in on these very small little schooners that were built very slim, very lightly, and they were very fast. And they would basically drop anchor at one of the Chinese ports that is closed to a foreign trade. And the captain would uh, plead with the Mandarin official who had come to this opium clipper saying, oh, we're short on water and food. We need to reprovision. And the Mandarin would then say, oh, okay, great. I get it. How much opium do you have on board and where's my bribe? Hmm. Well, <laughs> the, uh, that, was, that was the code. And then the silver would change hands and a crew from onshore would row to the opium clipper and uh, the drugs would be rowed ashore. The money would change hands and then the opium vessel would carry on to Canton, modern-day Guangzhou, which was the only port legally open to foreign trade until the 1840s. Hmm. And the Chinese government initially felt kind of helpless regarding this uh, problem up until uh, the 1830s when they decided to crack down on it, when the amount of silver flowing out of the imperial coffers just became too great, and they cracked down by seizing about 20,000 chests of opium from the Westerners in the foreigners' colony in Canton. Uh, That's about tens of millions of dollars worth of drugs. How did the money that just give me a little bit of a sense of the money that the that the sort of barons of the sea were making and how that money itself was kind of affecting America because their families, you know, were uh, just being there was just huge amounts being infused um, into these families. Yeah, Warren Delano II, for example, his big break uh, after he uh, returned from China with his fortune, he began investing along with several of his friends, including the Forbes brothers and Abiel Abbott Lowe, into these clipper ships. 
he actually redeployed one of his clipper ships from the China trade and made her the first clipper ship to sail from New York to San Francisco in 1848. And that ship cut down the typical sailing time around Cape Horn from 180 days to 120 days. And a good clipper ship on the California run could pay off the cost of her construction in a single voyage. <laughs> these are talking about $100,000 to $200,000, which is a, a huge fortune. And what these men did is that they took these profits from their clipper ships and then, then began investing them in newfangled technologies such as railroads, the transatlantic cable, really? western lands, copper mines, coal mines. And those that were smart by the 1860s had divested of the clipper ships because they were no longer economically profitable and had invested them in other enterprises. Uh, the hmm. Forbes family example invested this money into the Michigan Central Railroad, the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy. And eventually that fortune was invested into a company that became the American Telephone and Telegraph Company. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Stephen Ujifusa, a historian and author of Barons of the Sea and their race to build the world's fastest clipper ship. You've talked about so many voyages to California. Do you feel like if it weren't for the advent of clipper ships, the California that we know today, where something like something close to 40 million people live, right, the single most populous state in the United States, um, that it just wouldn't have been there uh, without uh, the, the the ships to supply it. No, I don't think so. Uh, San Francisco is, in many ways, culturally still an extension of Boston and New York. And that was largely because uh, so many of these uh, people from the Northeast came and settled. I mean, 100,000 people dropped what they were doing. They were mostly men, uh, dropped everything they were doing and tried to find some way to get to California to get rich quick. Hmm. And... To build the city of San Francisco required an immense amount of building materials, you name it, chairs, tables, crockery, booze, because California didn't have its own industrial or agricultural infrastructure. Meanwhile, the Northeast did. So anything you conceive of was put on these clipper ships and sold for a tremendous amount of money, as I mentioned earlier. An egg sold for a dollar in San Francisco in, right. in the early 1850s. Boots sold for $60. $60 in our dollars, $60 in their dollars? In 1850s dollars. That is incredible. I mean, yeah. $60 seems like a reasonable price for boots now. And Multiply uh, that times around 20 or 25. Wow. And uh, These are like $1,000 or $2,000 boots. Yes, and you had people actually, you know, not everybody, but some people in the California gold fields actually getting rich quickly. And mm -hmm. there's a reason why they call the mass transit cards in San Francisco clipper cards. The clippers built San Francisco. And honestly, one thing I wish I could see, uh, if I could go back in time, is be on Telegraph Hill in, say, 1851, 1852, and watching a clipper ship like the Flying Cloud arrive in San Francisco through the Golden Gate, this is before the bridge is built, imagine this beautiful swan-like vessel with trim lines and snow-white sails with some gilding on the stern glinting in the sunlight arriving in San Francisco. And this was the sort of thing that would cause a commotion. You'd have people running down mm. to the waterfront to greet the ship. What is this new ship that's come in and what is she carrying? What kind of goods is she now carrying that we could buy? It was a magical moment, and the mm. ships had just been cleaned and painted and scrubbed by the crew in preparation for arrival, because these ships took a huge beating going right. around Cape Horn. Of course. 
Do you think that the peri- that period of history has anything to teach us now? I don't know. Is there anything that uh, sort of you might be thinking about uh, because you know well about this period of history that, you know, most people wouldn't? I think the lessons of the opium trade are that, look, the this drug, which wreaked so much havoc in China and built a lot of this nation's early wealth, uh, the Chinese have not forgotten the start of the so-called century of humiliation in the uh, 1830s, 1840s. And uh, that's something that we should remember very carefully. And these clipper ships, they are so beautiful to look at in paintings, and they are universally seen as kind of symbols of enterprise and daring, and they're aesthetically just so beautiful to look at. When you, There's not a single American clipper ship that survives intact to this day, but the image is just so stirring. But these ships, at the same time, were freighters. They were built to make money. They were mm-hmm. built for speed. And the conditions on board were brutal if you were an ordinary sailor. And the concept of danger is just so different from the mid-19th century to today. If you were a clipper ship sailor and you were in the middle of a storm off Cape Horn and you had to shorten sail and you looked up at a mast that was 13 stories tall or more and you were told by the first mate you're, cl- you're going up there and shortening sail wow. and the mast is swinging through this huge arc, you couldn't say, no, that's against the regulation or you know, I can't do that, that's not safe. I mean, today you'd have recourse. In those days, you'd get flogged mm-hmm. <laughs> for uh, insubordination. I think that the value of human life sadly, in the mid-19th century, was a lot less. Hmm. And also, who was there to report on it? There was no radio communication from these ships. So what happened at sea, no one really talked about. Stephen Ujifusa is a historian. He's the author, most recently, of Barons of the Sea and their race to build the world's fastest clipper ship. Stephen, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time today. If you want to see pictures of the Grand Clipper ships, we've got them for you at our website, innovationhub.org. And we've also got a link to an article there about Franklin Delano Roosevelt's connection to China, which, not surprisingly, stemmed from the experiences of his grandfather, Warren Delano. 